Welcome back to Emerge. Today on the show, my guest is once again, Bonita Roy. Bonita and I are going to be going into some deeply geeky territory, talking about six different ways that human beings can go meta. I found this conversation and this exploration to be really clarifying. It helps me make sense of the different ways that that term can be used, the different kind of moves that human beings can make to go meta in relationship to the world. So this this one is very packed. Uh, you may want to this may not be one of those episodes that you want to listen to at, at double speed. If, if you can do that, then more power to you. Um, but it, there's a lot packed in. There's a lot of information, a lot of insight packed into this conversation. And I'll also link to the presentation that this conversation is based on. Uh, you can find that in the show notes. And then another announcement, um, Danny J who composed the outro music for Emerge, has just released his new single, which is that outro music. So if you have been enjoying the way that uh, episodes of Emerge end, you can now listen to that outro song anytime you want. Uh, his new album, which he composed, wrote, you know, created uh, here at the Monastic Academy when he was a resident, uh, will be released on July 12th, and, and you'll be able to find that at the same link at um, at danieljw.com. And there'll be a link to that as well in the show notes. Okay, please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Bonita Roy. The Emerge Podcast is proud to be sponsored by the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth. The Monastic Academy, located in Lowell, Vermont, is a training center dedicated to the amplification of human maturity in the age of the Anthropocene. The Academy trains its participants through a unique combination of rigorous contemplative training, project-based learning, and a disciplined commitment to ethical behavior, all held in the context of deep community. The Monastic Academy is currently accepting applications for the apprenticeship program. This program, lasting two or three months, includes silent retreats, daily meditation instruction, and regular authentic relating practices. This program is free. Other ways to participate include daily visits, week-long retreats, or, if you can work remotely, joining the Academy through the co-working program, allowing you to deepen your practice while keeping your job. For more information, you can go to www.monasticacademy.com. Welcome back to Emerge. Today on the show, I'm joined once again by uh, who is one of my favorite people in the world increasingly as a result of the inquiry of the show, Bonita Roy. And uh, we're going to be exploring 
a presentation that Bonita has recently developed that she showed me when I was visiting her at her house uh, a couple months ago. It's called The Six Ways of Going Meta. That's M-E-T-A, not M-E-T-T-A for you Buddhists out there. Um, And I found this presentation just kind of electrifying and clarifying in that it was helping me to understand a lot of the territory that I've been exploring on the show, but and could could feel distinctions between the kind of characters that I was interviewing and the way that they were approaching some of the problems of the Anthropocene, but couldn't really like nail what made them distinct from each other. And so I found this presentation just, as I say, really clarifying. And and then there's another piece of it, which is that I think seeing these six ways of going meta as we'll explore, um, you know, helps us reveal like which ways, uh, which minds are we very used to, which ways have we kind of grown accustomed to, and what alternatives are there, right? What alternatives are there for us in terms of participating differently in the world, in terms of giving rise to new behaviors, new thoughts, new ways of being. And so um, I kind of wanted to open up this season of Emerge with with a conversation around this because I think it it adds a tremendous amount of kind of like backwards context actually to the conversations I've been having and and I imagine forward context like to the conversations I will be having in terms of who's exploring which way of going meta um, and 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 furthermore why it's so useful to have access to these various we might call them meta moves. So, uh, Bonita, welcome back to the show, and, and thank you for taking the time to to share this work with us. Hi, very excited to talk about this. While you were speaking, I was thinking, well, it's so fantastic to actually have an audience for this, and it just shows how many people are really examining um, their own paradigms, examining um, the way they're thinking about things, and experimenting with that. So, um, that's a, a big leap from even five five years ago, I would say, certainly from five, 10 years ago. Uh, so just just wanting to reflect on um, good work, Team Human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, one of the things you say in the presentation, which I kind of, again, you, I think you gave specificity to a lot of intuitive senses that I have uh, had. And one of the things you say is that the Anthropocene itself is a kind of driver for discovering new ways to go meta. And I think maybe that's what we're experiencing too, is that people are kind of realizing the deficiency of some of the old ways of being, the old minds, the the normative mind that that they're holding and are looking for new ways to to be, to to participate. And so I, before though, we, we kind of dive into some of the nitty gritty, I would love to hear you reflect on like, because I, I imagine different people have different contexts for what meta means. I think it's one of those words that people use and maybe maybe don't actually have a really robust sense of what it means. Uh, what what does it mean to go meta? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> there's really two um, broad categories um, that we can use to look at this term going meta. So um, the first category is something that we do as uh, modern humans easily in conversation without knowing it. Um, Anyone who's written a term paper at the college level um, has made this move many times. And that is um, this 
um, ability to exit the context, the initial originary context. So, for example, if um, you come up to sit, come up to me just in a casual conversation and say, um, "Wow, you know something trivial about the weather." Oh, you know it's supposed to rain tonight. And instead of me just being in that context and say, "Oh, yeah, really," I say, "Oh." It's interesting. You ask about the rain, and all of a sudden, I'm in this other context, right? And um, mm. then I say, because weather is something that everyone, you know. Now I'm talking about this other kind of context about when and why and where people talk about the weather, and maybe that's a project I'm doing. So I've exited the actual invitation that you've given me, right? And we do this all the time, um, and and it's kind of we, we're. We're, we're inhabiting a context. And the next thing you know, we're inhabiting a new context in which the previous context is contextualized at a larger kind of conversation or something. And um, mm. so if, I, if someone says, what do you think of Elizabeth Warren's um, proposal for um, um, decreasing student bet? And then all of a sudden, instead of answering that question, I go, you know, is Elizabeth Warren, yeah, you know, her and Bernie Sanders and the Democrats and blah, blah, mm. blah. So I've just taken that, instead of inhabiting that conversation, I've made it a piece of a larger context. So I've gone, gone meta on it. And uh, mm. even everywhere in Facebook book posts, post, you see this, you'll have an opening post, and then you'll see the commentary thread going meta in many, many different ways. So um, this is... Um, an a, a, a easy way to understand the first category of going meta. And, and I think the audience knows we do that. So this is kind of an unconscious way, slipping context. So you all these different contextual levels um, uh, slide. So the, but what my presentation is about is more of the second way, which is a little more sophisticated. And that is, um, the ability to create an observational gap between the mind or the text or the context and, um, and your thinking process. Now, if you look closely, the first way of going meta actually requires a mind that can do this because the unconscious slipping, there's mm -hmm. some kind of a, a gap that is created between the initial content and where the mind has taken it. But I wouldn't call it an observational gap because it's unconscious. So mm. going meta in the second way is being consciously of taking the initial context and looking at it, knowing that, oh, let me push that off a little and then look at it and then comment through my second level or second degree reflection on the context that I'm looking at. And we call that an observational gap. It's commonly called uh, from Robert Keegan, a subject-object move. So the subject or the blending in the first instance becomes moved out as an object for the new subject to talk about. Um, in my work, I wanna avoid the, the term subject-object move because um, not every way of going meta makes an object of the other mm. side. When you when you create the gap and then you're thinking about the other side, 
Uh, you can make an object of it, but you can discover the agent agentic and participatory nature of the other side. And so it's more of a subject-to-subject -subject encounter. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And and maybe I would, I would love to hear you reflect a little bit about why it is that the Anthropocene is functioning as a driver to force us to discover new ways of going meta. Yeah, so... I don't want to say it in a trivial way. Um, some people say it like rah, rah, the Anthropocene and all this destruction is an opportunity for us to evolve as human beings. You know, I'm not sure that the trade-off is positive in that, in so much that way. I think what it shows us is that, um, very, very rarely, um, do people and perhaps never do humans as a species actually change this dr drastically, actually evolve this radically without the participation of the world, without something pushing and driving them. Um, we don't think ourselves into new and cool ways of being. This is true for rare people, artists and saints and geniuses, uh, innocent creative geniuses. But in general, it's the movement of the world, the changing of the conditions. You know, man, humans have survived different ice ages and different um, catastrophes and also different eras of flourishing. When we discovered oil and we had all this energy in a bottle, this was an um, event that created positive, quote unquote, trophic cascades brought in the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. So I think that you could call all of these techniques or technologies. Uh, part of it is the human technique and technology. Part of it is the world itself. The world discloses itself as um, an affordance for what we would mm. call positive, meaning um, happy and um, um, comforting um, and pleasurable uh, change. And also as an affordance for change because things are getting discomfortable and um, dangerous mm -hmm. and critical and threatening. Mm -hmm. So I think it's our, it's a sign of our participation in the world. And a lot of people uh, define the Anthropocene as, you know, humans are the dominant species on the planet. But I think it's really, we're, we're being forced to realize that we cannot dominate the planet, that we've never been separate, that what goes around is coming around. And mm. so I would hope people start to think mm. of the Anthropocene as uh, the commitment of the world to do its part in worlding us. And it's very clear that mm, the earth and the climate mm. and the biosphere move us, mm. move us to do things like change our mind, to migrate all over the world, to um, really embark on trying to solve things that matter to us. So just bringing the world back into it is a critical component of the Anthropocene. Uh, so maybe the Anthropocene is not a <laughs> great, a great term for this era. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and so the, the first way of going meta that you mentioned, you refer to in your presentation as meta synthetic. And, and just for listeners, uh, as a kind of reference point, it's really helpful for me, at least to, to know of thinkers who are, you know, famous for doing this kind of move. So, so two examples that you had in the presentation mm -hmm. were, were folks like, uh, Hegel or Ken Wilber, who kind of took things that existed and then kind of 
uh, looked at what was common among them and then created a new context in which they could make sense out of all of the objects that they were looking at. And so for Hegel, that's the thesis, antithesis, synthesis move. And for Wilbur, that's famously the transcend and include move. But what you also say in the presentation is that there are certain deficiencies of the metasynthetic move that are kind of perhaps part and parcel of causing us to like look to other ways of going meta to help us make sense of the complexity of the world or the, the kind of condition of the world. And so uh, you mentioned uh, runaway epistemologies, hyperobjects, and overmining. I don't know if you want to kind of paint a picture about like the deficiencies of the metasynthetic uh, before we kind of look at maybe some of the more novel uh, meta moves that you've been looking at. Yeah, so um, I think you you hit on them all. If we look at uh, Ken Wilber's theory, for example, and many I think of our listeners have some um, um, <clears throat> knowledge or familiarity with his aqual. Well, Ken Wilber said there's four basic contexts, right? There's the singular in, inter, internal, the subjective context. There's the plural internal shared, the intersubjective context. There's the singular objective and the... <clears throat> plural uh, objective. And so these are four contexts or four native views that people can be at. And then, of course, he purportedly is then saying, I'm not going to be in any one of these contexts. I'm going to take a step back and say, well, here's these four contexts. What can I say about them? So he's he's creating a new context in which to talk about these four native contexts, and he's calling it integral theory. And he's applying theories of change on these contexts. Um, um, it's kind of so so. so um, <laughs> So what happens is it gets even more complex because now I'm in a view that has to simultaneously um, remind myself, simultaneously include all four contexts in every approach to every situation. So that's one part of the uh -huh. metasynthetic is that it gets very complex really fast, it escalates complexity. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you see when in the early days of integral theory, I'm an associate editor of integral review, we'd get all these submissions. And instead of four contexts, you had these cubes and these hypercubes and these quadracubes and oh, these boy. fractals of cubes. <laughs> Because people were doing the same move on, on Wilbur's move, and we never published any of them because there's, there's, there's something quite neurotic and obsessive about the mind that does that. And yeah. so the metasynthetic escalates complexity. Um, it also gives you a false sense because let's say even Wilbur doing this move on these, these native perspectives, he fails then to ask himself, well, what perspective do, do I hold? There's the impression that he's holding the perspective from or he's, from nowhere, or that he's a perspectival, and um, and so he, so his own perspective is untouchable in some sense, right? So this is kind of an illusion of the metasystemic move, um, but it's also the move that creates this infinite regress because once you realize that the complex perspective that you're coming from can itself be contextualized and you pop into yet another deeper perspective and it kind of goes on forever. Right. So right. that's right. kind of like what happens, what I've watched happen over the last 10 years or so. But the other, um, other challenges for metasystemic move is one, they exit their own domain. 
So um, there's this great book written by Sean Esborn Hargens called Integral Ecology. It contextualizes all the known ways that people address eco- ecological problems, but it's not, it doesn't itself do co- ecology. So that's, um, mm. that's, and that's one of the challenges with going meta uh, in a metasynthetic way. The second is this challenge that I talked about in my paper of overmining. Uh, you keep mining mm. more and more complexity until you end up with um, a conceptual objects such as, such as climate change, which is a hyper object. It's so complex, you can't actually manipulate it with reasoning faculty. And you end up um, in a kind of state of uh, inertia. Um, that's mm-hmm. a problem. And uh, then over time, this creates, it's just another term for it, runaway epistemologies, that, that mm-hmm. the way you talk about things gets more and more and more complex, but continues to get further and further from actionable impact. And um, yeah, so it kind of seems to be, yeah. uh, uh, it, it's, it, I believe that we are at the point where many people are recognizing it for the kind of dead end or inadequate um, epistemic mm-hmm. move. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and it bears repeating that this is, and has been the most common meta move in human history. Uh, but you, it, it, that's accurate, right? Yes. And I think that um, in, you know, in small dosages, it was, it's very, it's very powerful. You know, there are many situations in which, Let's say we're doing government policy, and as we're doing policy with friends, we go, wait a second, we need more diversity. So I'm going to pop out, go meta, uh, try to understand that from that perspective, then bring more diversity in, and then get back on to the work of um, doing the program. Um, So, and, you know... Uh, what do they say? Too much of a bad thing never creates a good thing, but too much of a good thing quite often <laughs> uh, results in a bad thing. And so the mm, promise mm. of meta, uh, I have students that come out of, um, like, for example, in this case, the new school in New York City, and they come with minds that are capable of so much meta systemic complexity and that they that you mm. can see as they're talking that, that from this view, it holds all these contexts, but then they're going to hold another context from that view and, and on and on and on. And to, um, I have to um, disemploy them of their own, um, own skill and talent, really, uh, in, in, um, in thinking this way by really actually going meta on that kind of thinking. So if you can get mm-hmm. people to do that, they can see, wow, what am I doing? I'm just creating this complex mental model of every feedback loop that I can think of. And there's actually no end to that epistemologically. What we, want, what we may mm. try to find the end is where does the world end, you know? But in mm. terms of mm. epistemological complexity, there's no end to that. Um, and that's mm. when it, mm. maybe our epistemology actually exits the world itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think it, it bears saying that it, n- none of these meta moves are problematic in and of themselves. And and really, I think the invitation that I received from the presentation is like, oh, there's like six different, at least six different ways of, of kind of doing this meta thing. 
maybe it's appropriate to learn how to be fluid between them and kind of leverage them when appropriate. And also to just acknowledge that there are other ways of being in the world other than the metasynthetic, which, you know, is, it used to be quite comfortable for me as the kind of major way. But now I, I've been obviously at, at the monastery playing more with the second move that you talk about, which is the deconstructive meta move, which uh, does it, it didn't immediately make sense to me why this would also be a meta move. And so maybe I wonder if you could sort of explain how, how this fits into your your view of the meta move, uh, this deconstructive path. So the deconstructive meta move is uh, certainly associated with the Eastern path. Um, and some postmodernism like Derrida, uh, Foucault a bit, Derrida and Foucault. And that is that you take the existing way of looking at the system and you deconstruct it down to, um, well, in the Eastern path to emptiness. You see that nothing stands on its own or um, you, you remove all the linkages. And of course, when you remove all the linkages of a codependent arising system, such as thought, well, then it disappears. So it's a meta move because it requires creating an observational gap. Right. So when you're doing meditation, mm. early meditation is really to notice when thoughts arise before you can then, you know, manipulate them and deconstruct them. You have to you have to have these um, objects, these 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 relationships that constitute your internal experience. You have to be able to see them to witness them, to observe them. And so all these meta moves in the second category which are which the first two of the first two categories I talked about when we first started talking require this observational gap whether it's conscious or unconscious and in in as I understand meditation um, there's an attempt to do practices that makes it conscious and then you can consciously yeah. start working downwards through the deconstructive path and removing these internal linkages between thoughts and hmm. affects and mental models and imagery and perception, you start removing these linkages in a somewhat systematic way to continuously unravel the complex knot of experience until um, you're left with subtler and subtler objects that also can be absented or ablated um, until you experience they're either they're non-arising or um, some conceptual, somewhat conceptual insight about the nature of interdependent reality. So this is also called negative dialectics in contrast to Hegel's dialectics. And there's just to mm -hmm. tidy this part up, there's actually different ways people in the Eastern traditions have dealt with this. Um, so, um, you know, I like to say that, for example, uh, Nishida Kitaro, he, he worked with the, with the dialectics more like matter and antimatter, that they kind of destroy each other. Like it's a proposition and it's opposite, destroy each other. It's so cool. It's so cool because mm. in, the, in the West, a proposition in its, in its uh, opposite or contra contrary um, create a higher, higher uh, perspective. And then Nagarjuna, right. you know, he actually came to more of an insight on emptiness. And Dogen worked with um, these kind of deconstructive uh, moves to create a whole illogics, um, which is 
quite hard to penetrate. But um, there's, it's neat that there's like these different flavors of the deconstructive move in the East. Right. And, and so uh, it, it's easy then to contrast this deconstructive meta move with the meta synthetic in, in the sense that the meta synthetic is this kind of upward path of n- discovering novel contexts and broader contexts, bigger contexts that include the objects within them. Whereas the deconstructive path is kind of almost like the movement in the opposite direction, right? Where you're using the same kind of objects that the metasynthetic mind works with, but using them to kind of deconstruct to lower and lower levels of complexity. Is that a kind of accurate way of saying it? Yeah. Yes. So in in terms of Foucault and Derrida, they were doing that just with linguists, linguistics and language. Um, but um, Buddhists all over the world realized that they were very close to doing what meditation also was doing on a, on a experience. Meditation works with experience. Uh, Foucault and Derrida mostly with language and, um, um, you know, uh, conventional paradigms. Um, but that's that deconstructive move. You already start with something that's complex. You make it conscious by creating an observational gap. And instead of, um, complexifying that object in your awareness more. You tease apart the pieces, uh, which means <clears throat> actually to uh, decouple all the relationships. And mm. in the end, you, you end up with um, nothing because thought <laughs> and experience are holistically codependent arising uh, processes. And when you take all the relationships out of holistically codependent arising processes, there's nothing left. <laughs> yeah, and, and the deficiencies of this move are, uh, as you mentioned, and we don't need to, I don't think, belabor this too long because it's, it might be quite obvious to listeners, but are, are things like nihilism, inaction, and uh, the, the, the very sophisticated term navel-gazing. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that, that, that's, that's the that's the deficiency of this move. That's why doing this deconstructive move isn't what is called for only uh, yes. at this time, at this hour on the planet. Yes, but why it is actually essential to a lot of the other moves we'll talk about, the more emergent ones, is that it is a direct path toward creating a clean palette. And when mm. you're trying to experiment with other kinds of meta moves or metacognition, then having a clean palette that doesn't immediately go down the old grooves basically mm. toward metasynthetic or this infinite regress is very helpful. So, mm. um, yeah, so um, there's a whole there's a whole conversation we could have about this. We could go net, net on the deconstructive move. But <laughs> um, whether or not it is the end game, emptiness is the end game, or is it the fruition of a vehicle from which then a whole new mind can emerge? I've always believed it's the fruition of a series of vehicles or practices, which basically now you're at, you know, now you're at the starting point. But um, there's a a whole nother uh, podcast on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that has been uh, something I've spent a lot of time reflecting on. It's uh, that emptiness implies malleability, right? There's a mm-hmm. there's a kind exactly. of liberation of fluidity that uh, emptiness 
offers us, yep. right? If we if we deconstruct these other grooves, as you say, and so um, we'll, I guess maybe we should spend uh, a little bit of time. You you kind of went in a little bit to the metacognitive move, but I think it's worth just going down the list in order so we don't confuse people who might be watching the presentation later. Like what? How is the metacognitive move in relationship to the other two that we mentioned? Like what what makes it unique? Okay, so in the metacognitive mood uh, move. Um, this is the one that um, highlights this creating an observational gap. Um, and um, what's interesting when you look at that from an experiential, if you, if you watch yourself making metacognitive moves or you study metacognitive uh, epistemologies, um, there are, there's something really fascinating that's happening that happens. So if I, for example, am, thinking about the earth as seen from space, and I'm asking a question about it, then in my mind, I have created an imaginary viewpoint, i.e. one that is not on the earth, but of course I am on the earth. And Mm. um, it's the the same with um, the move from Ptolemy to Copernicus, to understand the earth as revolving around the sun required Copernicus to make an imaginary viewpoint at which he could see the earth revolving around the sun from a place that's not standing on the earth. So what's interesting about metacognition or metacognitive moves is that as, as have been, has been widely researched and reported, it creates this observational gap but what has not been talked about very, very much is that in creating an observational gap, you're actually also required to create a virtual uh, viewpoint in which you're standing. Mm. And then we can go meta on that and say, what are the kinds of virtual viewpoints do people create in different types of metacognitive um, reasoning or epistemologies? So. Mm. <clears throat> So this is quite complex. You can see how there's two or three levels there of inquiry. Yeah, yeah. And and so you you in the presentation go into all the different modes of the metacognitive move. And there's there's a lot there. As you say, it's 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 complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think um for the purposes of this conversation, uh I wanna I wanna get on to the the three uh moves that you have that have been kind of emerging now and so i think it's it's useful to say at this point that these first three ways of going meta we've been talking about the metasynthetic the deconstructive and the metacognitive are fairly common in our culture right like the the metasynthetic is the most common but the other two are not that uncommon correct um whereas these last three three through six are pr- or four four through six are are pretty experimental and I would say it's it, are, are really a response to some of the limitations of the whole Western science project and a response to some of the critiques of postmodernism. And so it, it's very much like an emergent kind of experimental space that you and a lot of the guests on this show have been exploring. And so I'm, I'm really excited to explore these three ways of going meta. And, and I'll just say, I'll say the three of them, mm-hmm. and then we'll kind of go into each of them in turn. So uh, first we have the orthogonal move. That's uh, 
the fourth way of going meta in, in your list. Then we have simplexity, which is the fifth way of going meta. And then the last is something you call holistically oriented critical reflexivity. And that's the last way that you've identified. And um, what's interesting is that each of these ways of going meta, um, I've actually interviewed people who are kind of representations mm-hmm. of of the, this kind of move. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make sure in reference to previous episodes uh, for folks who want to explore any individual way in greater depth, but let's let's go through each of them. What 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 is the orthogonal move? Okay, the orthogonal move is uh, um, kind of a move that says let's just put the old mind aside and either move to entirely new um, um, what we would call metaphysical architectures or architectures of thinking. Um, or move to things like that are very practical, practical judgment, um, eschesis, um, phronesis. These are all uh, Greek terms because there was a similar moment in Greek philosophy which tried to say all this kind of conceptual thinking is not really practical. So we have actually a lot of these these uh, Greek terms. But what it means is, for example... Mm-hmm. In terms of switching to different architect- cognitive architectures, uh, Whitehead um, wrote a huge amount of work, a big canon, on um, uh, speculative, speculative ontology, so that um, speculative metaphysics. He was saying, "What if, what if our minds in the world? What if we used our mind to look at the world in this different way?" And instead of uh, basing it on objects and things, basing it on uh, movement and process. What if we make movement and process mm-hmm. primary? And of course, everything reverses, right? Subjects become objects mm-hmm. and past becomes future and effects become causes because he reversed some fundamental feature of um, our paradigm. And um, so... Uh, that's one that I'm really familiar with. Can't uh, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to think of when in the history of philosophy that has has been done before. Uh, Deleuze probably with uh, you know rhizomatic interfaces and um, guitar. So I think um, um, uh, uh, Roy Bashkar's uh, move to um, uh, uh, critical realism, and then the people that followed them that said uh, object-oriented philosophy. Let's take objects as real and fundamental. You know what would happen then? So these are kind of mm. experimental uh, choices. People choose to uh, construct their thinking and their paradigms this way, and to see what what they can discover and what kind of questions they can ask um, that they haven't been able to ask in a different way. That's still very much an epistemology. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things you say is that it's sort of like making a meta move on some of the primary metaphysical assumptions, in most cases of, of modernity, right? Yes. And so there's something really interesting in that too. But, but what it enables you to do is once you say, well, let's just turn to a different architecture of thought, then you just inhabit that thought you don't make meta moves on it because it yes. opens enough novelty that you can stay at level one within the new paradigm, right? So that's that's the um, advantage of it, one of the advantages of it. So you revisit the same questions within this uh, a completely different logical construction. 
Yeah. And, and so one of the things you say about all s- the kind of movement between one and six of the various ways of going meta is that there's progressively less complexity in each of the various moves, typically speaking. Um, mm-hmm. And so w- as you say that um, in the orthogonal move, there's a kind of flattening out of things. So there's less ontological depth, but what I experience the orthogonal move, especially like talking with people like Adam Roberts, or mm-hmm. also I think Rob Berbea is kind of exploring this in his own way within in relationship to Buddhism, but that there's a kind of like liberation of creative energy and experimentation because you're no longer burdened by the complexity of the metasynthetic move. You're kind of like freed from that. And so there's this kind of like, almost like a- aesthetic space, creative space mm-hmm. that's opened up uh, that, yeah, there's, uh, that, that opens up as a kind of flat terrain of exploration. It's really yeah, it's interesting. A, it's a whole new sandbox. Mm-hmm. My, 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 my favorite one and is, in, in, is, um, uh, something that I love to live in. And that is neo-animism, like Graham Harvey's neo-animism, that, that there's agents on both sides of the participation. So coffee moves a million people mm. every morning and great wars have actually been fought over tea. And mm. um, this notion of seeing the animated part of the interaction on what we would also call non-living or other living animals, you know, that the whole world can become animated, that when green, this green of spring draws my eye, it's not just the desire in me, but there's something about the green itself that has the power to turn my attention. Mm-hmm. This way of, of uh, this omnidirectionality of agents and agency um, is a choice. And when you make that choice, the, um, a lot gets solved and, and um, a lot of novel experiences, the world c- can become enriched. Um, uh, but those, and those are in mm. the, in the realm of epistemologies, but you mentioned Adam Robert and it's, it's cool because I created this term orthogonal and then I realized Adam Robert was doing it. And of course the title of his website and his work is the side view, <laughs> which means to make this, orthogonal means moving sideways you know Mm. Mm -hmm. and his is more on the second move which is let's not let's just keep our epistemology adequate to the practical task at hand um base um the validity of an epistemology base you know qualify that as what works um stay close to the bone, use the body, use perception and attention. He talks about perception, the body as an instrument of of perception. So kind of moving it down into this rich, lived kind of um, um, practice. And the second uh, this so the second definition of the orthogonal move gets us really close to what we're going to talk about the last one, which is basically not an epistemology at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, what's what's really cool, I think, within the orthogonal kind of space is that there's a. Uh, I think you called it. <laughs> I I, I kind of hate and love this term, but meta metaphysics, right? Where there's this <laughs> liber- this capacity then to sort of like, oh yeah. I can see the world in this animistic way where everything has agency and is participating in me as I'm participating in in it. And I can just kind of like try that metaphysics on, not necessarily because it's has some sophisticated metasynthetic 
argument to support it, but just because mm-hmm. maybe it practically delivers more meaningfulness or calls forth my participation in the world in a way that I appreciate, right? There's this kind of uh, freedom to play with different ways of seeing different metaphysics even uh, in order to achieve particular pragmatic ends, perhaps. Yeah. And I want to make the point that these moves require create creative imagination just to like, well, then what am I going to move to? But they're not illogics. Like if you look at neo-animism, if I say coffee animates people, you'll see if you do a certain practice that the it's not illogical, it's not fiction, it's not fantastical. You can see that the only reason why we don't say that is due to a construction of mind. Yes. Right. So we want to make sure that we're not creating just illogics. Um, but what we're doing is we're saying let's release the boundary of mind that always has it this way. And um, in this case, I don't create a different boundary. I don't say that then subjects like uh, who is it? Either Dan- Dennett or I think Daniel Dennett talks about zombie people. Mm. So then he creates a different type of boundary, you know, that people actually don't have minds. But here I'm just releasing the boundary of what it is to be a subjective uh, agent in participation. Mm. Um, mm. So, um, yeah, so we're not talking about like um, something that is, uh, you know, not rational or not logical. They have their own log- demand for logics within uh, the, their own paradigms, experimental yeah. paradigms. Yeah, cool. And so if you want to explore this uh, meta move, I highly recommend um, Adam Roberts' work. And I did an interview with him previously. You can search for it with Adam Roberts. Uh, and as uh, Bonita mentioned, the side view is his publication, website, podcast. And and he's doing really interesting work to explore, I think, this kind of orthogonal space. Um, Definitely. And so, yeah, let's let's move on to the next move, which you call simplexity. And, and um, yeah, so what is what's simplexity, Bonita? So this area is actually being populated by a lot of activity right now, a lot of people. Um, yeah, is it kind of uh, evolved to some kind of radial expansion. Mm. Um, so um, simplexity are modes that dis this is kinds of gets uh, complicated. So there's this mode that seeks to identify something like source protocols or deep code inside the epistemic architecture. Um, so for example, I've done podcasts with you where yeah. instead of talking about power at this kind of like postmodern way where there's patriarchy and there's mm. like institutional uh uh, racism and all this complexity, we say, well, uh, <clears throat> let's go back. What is power? <laughs> like, what do, how do we understand power from a lived experience? Is attempt yes. to say, I've got lost in the discourse. Can we figure out what is the most fundamental, like I call them, conceptual prime about power and then reboot what we're talking about? Because sometimes the discourse is really pointing just to um, history of the discourse itself and not um, and, and not re-examining its own roots, and perhaps even our understanding of power is different. So this attempt to um, move down to a lower level of abstraction that's real in all cases, and then going slowly, not jumping into this hyper 
complex discourse saying, what, what is the problem we're trying to solve with this discourse? And can we stay closer to um, these simpler definitions to examine what our problem is and move toward a resolution? And um, I did a whole series uh, uh, articles in Medium. It, it's it's um, uh, put together as a big article in Integral Leadership Review on releasing complexity, which just goes through the different hmm. uh, levels of systemic complexity that we can start to parse down to get to a level of what I call heuristics, which is just drawings that help us make uh, sense of things. So mm -hmm. that gives you that, but then a lot of people are doing it in, in different ways. Yeah. And so I think what I found really fascinating was that three of the people that you identify as being sort of uh, as experimenting within this emerging meta move uh, are Jordan Greenhall, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and yourself. Three of the people that in this podcast, I've been most drawn to is having something kind of they're holding something radically new and useful and relevant to the situation we find ourselves in. And so I wonder if you could um, kind of uh, differentiate between uh, what you see like Daniel doing and what you see Jordan doing and what you're doing. Yeah, so um, I recently read a book called Ontopolitics by David Chandler. Hmm. And he has a very good framework. I, I, would, I would like to share it because I think it gets clarity around this. Um, mm. And he calls the three different ways of uh, simplexity as um, mapping, sensing, and hacking. Mm. So mapping, he uh, clarifies. all, And also he said these are all modes of, um, of thinking that are driven by the the emergence of the Anthropocene, the effects of the Anthropocene. Hmm. So mapping is looking for causal de depth. And this um, um, maps <laughs> cl more closely to what Daniel Schmattenberger is doing. He's really interested in genera generator functions, uh, highly leveraged um, um, tipping points and thresholds and traffic cascades. When you hear him speak and he's outlining how one thing impacts the other and impacts the other, he's really looking for ontological causes of complex mm. systems and trying to map those out. And so in this sense, Chandler characterizes it as um, a focus on autopoetic systems. This affects that, which affects this, which affects that kind of kind of thing. But the challenge here is that um, you can run in the situation run into a situation where there's the depth, there's infinite amount of depth in the causal chain. Mm. Um, so it is a move towards simplexity, um, but it has um, this topology of being very, very, very deep. Mm. Now um, so um, in the middle uh, Chandler talks about sensing, mapping, sensing, and then happing, hacking. Sensing in this case is um, unfortunately not the same as what other people think of when they talk about sense making. Mm. Um, in this case, Chandler talks mostly about uh, datafication. And um, in this area, and it's, and I think I'm bringing it in here because it didn't make my uh, tutorial, I don't think. Hmm. And it's a whole range of ways that we as humans are moving toward that people like you and I do not highlight. So mm -hmm. I think we should mm -hmm. put it here. And that is what he means by sensing is that 
there are, with the power of AI to look at patterns across vast amount of data and all this surveillance uh, equipment we have and all this data mining we're doing from social media, AI can find patterns that are based on correlation only, not cause. Mm. So for example, you might find that when uh, women in London switch to a certain um, color in fashion, there's an uprising in Kabul. Now, AI might actually see this, but nobody thinks that there's a causal linkage between fashion color in London and up in, you know, violence in Kabul. But what mm. may be the case is that some, um, you know, cell in Kabul sends their messages through a shipping company that picks up this color from some, you know, eclectic um, color manufacturer, and then that goes to London. Hmm. So there are these contingent causal links that are, but it makes makes the final endpoint and the effect just correlational. <clears throat> and apparently, AI is starting to notice these things. They tend to be temporary. And the whole reason for this type of surveillance is not really, unlike Schmattenberger's work or mine and Jordan Hall's, it's not really to create new things. It's to mitigate... Um, like mitigate negative things. So they're really looking for homeostasis to, that the, you know, to keep the power structures as they are, to keep um, such status as usual, situation as usual. Mm. But there's a huge amount of investment in yeah. this second um, level. And the reason why it's called, uh, it, it makes my category a simplexity is because you're not looking for causal chain. Mm. You're not asking complex questions. You're just really looking for patterns across many, 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 many data points. So it's, 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 uh, whereas, uh, Chandler says in the first case, you're looking for veracity or truth. In the second case, you're looking for quantity and velocity. Mm. Right? right. So I just wanted to put it here because it is a new kind of approach driven by the Anthropocene. Certainly, right. you know, we, we tend to be less interested. Yeah. yeah, and it is an attempt to offer up simple ways of navigating complexity. Like that's kind of Correct. like what it's sold as, right? Is that it helps you make sense of all of the data out there and gives you a simple tools for interacting with it and, and all of that. And so it's yeah, it's so interesting yeah, yeah. that it's it's going after the same it's th there's a similar directionality as you're mentioning. It's it's very fascinating. Yeah, it's saying yeah, it's saying we can't understand it, so we're not going to try to understand it. We're just going to look at patterns and act. Oh, and yeah. we don't even know if our actions are in the right direction. It's just simple feedback loops between AI and and boots on the ground, basically. Lot, there's a so, lot that could be said about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, it creates correlations between... AI and uh, deep, you know, deep mind and boots on the ground, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I it would, it would, and it would, you know, Chandler helped me realize it's in this category also. Hmm. Hmm. He calls it sensing, but as I said, it's not sensing the way uh, we usually think about it. Now, the third one's called hacking. I find myself in the hacking category, which I really hmm. like. Hmm. <laughs> and that is in hacking, um, there's a great reversal about the Anthropocene. In ha hacking, you say, okay, all these surprises 
these things we didn't predict or failed to, to predict or failed to take seriously because some of these effects we've actually been predicting for a long time. There's something in the, there's something in the system in which we can just allow the surprises to move us toward you know, injecting novelty in the system. One of the things we're injecting novelty in is all these different ways of, of thinking. Mm. So instead of, um, instead of autopoetic, uh, which is uh, systems interplaying with each other or homeostatic, it's truly uh, advancing novelty. Now, it reminds me of what Nora Bateson once told me. She said, things have to get a whole lot weirder before they can get better. Mm. And it's kind of like not moving in the direction in the sense like, well, let's drop an atomic bomb, but moving into, um, if we have a lot of migration, instead of Instead of uh, passing legislation to slow down migration, what can we do, for example, to amplify migration? And how could that help us? Like moving in the direction of the response. Mm. Um, and um, so it's, you know, it's harder to understand, but it's this notion of let's just creative, creatively liberate ourselves from being contracted by the response of Gaia. Mm. Okay? And mm. we say... Not that Gaia is punishing us, not that Gaia is dying, but Gaia, it wants us to dance in this new participation. Mm. And it reminds me of, um, for example, when I talk about, um, you know, I, um, if you're gardening and you see insects eating your plants, instead of you say, oh, here's more life. This is a surprise, you know, I didn't want mm. this to happen, let's say. Mm. Here's a surprise, there's more life in my garden. Now, how can I even add more life mm. to balance that? You know, it's like mm. not get rid of the more life that came in, that seems to be a problem, but the, oh, more life, it's telling me add more life. Now, it's, you know, you can't be reductive about it. You can say, oh, the climate is telling us to add more heat. That's, that's not <laughs> the point. But these creative ways, you have to be really creative of how you respond to the invitation. Ah, this is an invitation. Ah, this is an invitation. Hmm. Because it is a holistic system that wants to heal itself. Hmm. And it's kind of like um, the way we create uh, um, homeopathic uh, uh, um medicines, right? They're not allopathic. They're not if then. If you take this pill, then you're going to get better. It's a, it's kind of trying to work within the feed loops of the system itself. Uh, and I would put in this Charles Eisenstein's mm. um, way of looking at the complexity of, mm. you know, that the, that the, what the earth is doing is not a problem, is that we, in our response, we are destroying the systems that the earth needs to move to to handle um nine billion people let's say maybe the earth could handle 50 billion people we don't know hmm. um but it's it's kind of hacking you know hacking through these normal ways and being very creative and try to see some of this as liberating structures like you know that the earth is banging us on the head not to stop but like to creatively advance into mm. a certain trajectory that that we're, um, you know, not quite smart enough to see, even though it's, you know, hidden in plain sight. So, 
Mm -hmm. um, I think that that makes part of it. In my tutorial, I put Dave Snowden in sense making approaches, and he is in you know the in the sense in the second category in terms of sensing more, using technology to sense more. But he's certainly not into like the extreme version of datafication that uh, Chandler talks about. So. Um, all of these are in in the notion of simplexity because uh, what they're trying to simplify is um, release the complexity of trying to find causal depth uh, mm -hmm. in some way or another. Have simple feedback loops between, let's say, in Dave Snowden's work, uh, surveys that people have turned into visualizations and then single feedback loop, I interpret the visualization and just move on from there. So hmm. trying to get back to s more simple discourse, simple but powerful protocols, simple perceptual feedback loops in moving forward. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so I, what really struck me in the presentation when you were describing this was when you framed the Anthropocene as the, the surprising and novel participation of the world itself. Yeah. And that the hacking perspective can kind of see this and work with this. I was surprised, though, you said that one of the uh, challenges or the, the, the challenge that was identified for hacking was meaninglessness. And yes. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we talked about this in the last cohort I had. Um, so the provocative... Um, point that Ch Chandler, Chandler raises is he, he sees the progression. He's trying to see, well, what's the progression between these three? And um, he says that um, we're, you know, over time, we need to learn to be less and less instrumental of the earth. Mm. And um, so he talks about how we've, you know, used the earth as an object. We've instrumentalized it for extraction. Everything is for us, for us, for us. But then he says that when you get, by the time you get to hacking, you see really how deep it is that we actually don't understand the Anthropocene because we want to make what's, what the earth is, how the earth is behaving still make meaning for us. Right. Mm. So we want to be saved. We want a survival. We want to fix climate change. And why? Because we want to live or we want to save the parts of life that we love. It's all mm. the whole thing is in our own meaning making system. Mm. And so he's suggesting that that's still um, very powerfully, although subtly, instrumentalizing the earth. It reminds me of something I say to my students early on in the course. And it's, we're talking about, you know, as we do levels of develop, adult development, levels of spiritual growth, you know, there's levels everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I say that I only have, I have a three rubric system. Hmm. And the first system is that um, we think everything, you know, to solve, to increase happiness and uh, increase pleasure and decrease suffering. It's all about external conditions, right? So all mm. about that person over there or that system out there, or if I had more money, if the sun, if it didn't rain, you know, everything is trying to fix the external landscape. And then the second um, 
So that's one level. And the second level where many, many people, a lot of people spend part of the time there. And, you know, when we complain, I could do this if I had more money or if blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But the middle term is occupies spiritual uh, practitioners for a long, long time. And I call it cracking the code. You realize just how much the external situation, or at least your perception of it, depends upon your internal state. Mm-hmm. So we pe- we spend a lot of time there. But the third, uh, the third move, in my opinion, is a tremendous leap in consciousness, and that is you realize it's never been about you, and so mm. there's there's and you see how egotistical even the middle stage is because even though you're doing all this work and you call it spiritual and you might, you know, be rewarded with ha- having achieved the highest yana or something, <laughs> it's really about you. And in the third phase, you zoom way out and you realize it's never been about you. And you start, um, you, people start talking about being an instrument of, mm. um, an instrument to this larger happening. And so you basically are curious, how can I creatively be part of this? But you're not really making meaning because the making meaning comes through you and you start to realize how inadequate to the task a human perspective is on what is going on, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, that can be liberating feeling. But um, actually, when we tried it on in my course a couple of weeks ago, it was, you know, it can be very close to despair and meaninglessness. Um, mm. But mm. we quickly noticed that we can't help stop stop making meaning, but we shouldn't expect the world's behavior to provide meaning for us. We need to say, you know, we are creatively meaning-making ourselves, and this project mm. is a tiny little piece of what the cosmos does. And, the, you know, it's... Mm. it's and, so it's kind of like uh, just seeing the scale at which things actually are and coming to, to terms with that. Mm. That mm. makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. There's, there's, it, it does make sense. And, and I think, um, yeah, especially what you said around uh, you can't help but make meaning and that there's somehow more asked of us instead of putting it all on the world in this case, or more asked of the whole, I don't know. I, I, I can't, I can't even speak <laughs> to this, yeah, into this think, way of seeing it's very hard with the, with the language we have. Yeah. I think it has, you know, um, it has something to do with Trungpa called drop the theistic attitude. Hmm. You're not a God. You're not close to the gods and there are no gods to save you. And yet, ah, mm-hmm. delight you know, and yeah. yet, so mm. it's, it's, it's something like that. But anyways, that's a piece of it. That's a, that's a kind of a deep piece. And I just kind kind of got into thinking about that or um, meditating on that um, recently. So. Mm. Mm. And, and is there anything else that you want to say about this complexity move before we head into the, the, the final, the final, final meta move? Yeah, so the only other thing that I want to say about the simplexity move is that um, the f- one of the features of this is that 
in all these cases, there's um, a question of separating the epistemic complexity from ontological complexity. And that is um, um, understanding that the notion of complexity itself is an epistemic structure, right? Um, mm. And sometimes I use the, again, I, I overuse this in a sense, but I, I use the um, story of Ptolemy and Copernicus. Ptolemy had um, outlined the movements of the planets around the, uh, the earth in terms of cycles and epicycles. They had great explanatory power. They explained why the apparent retrograde of Mars, for example. Um, but there was, it was a very complex uh, system. And then once you uh, revise the model of the movement based upon um, thinking of the sun as the uh, center of the solar system, then it, re it released the complexity of the um, mental model. And, but the planets didn't all of a sudden like run around and rearrange themselves, right? So there's mm. always this question of is the complexity in the world or is it in the construction that the mind is using to frame or interpret or to make mental models or to think about the world? And um, you can go a long way by really um, assuming that the complexity and even the notion of complexity is in a mind that so frames um, the world. Yeah, which which brings us nicely into the into the last move, which maybe is is the hardest one to describe of all of these. And um, I know when my friend Peter Park, he also. Uh, watched you do the presentation where you're at your house, and he he felt the most resonant with this, which I think speaks to his monastic training. And so there's a kind of uh, some there's something in this uh, last move which you call holistically oriented critical reflexivity, which makes sense for, to those with a lot of uh, meditative or embodied training. But uh, can you can you kind of sketch a picture as best you can of this of this move? Yeah. So it it. It's, there's a nice bridge to what we just said, and that is once you realize that the the difference between epistemic complexity and ontological reality, let's say, because I don't want to say ontological complexity, but just just you know what you see is what you get. Um, that enables you to think of, well, not think, to drop. Um, much or most of your framework and um, just concentrate on what I would call the evolutionary potentials of the core self, which are things like attention, perception, mm. sensation. Um, and if you refine those so you see more, you feel more, um, you imagine greatly with conscious intention, then you enter a whole new way of being in the world. So these are non-epistemic. Even the conscious application of creative imagination is non, I would call, non-epistemic. Because you're, mm. uh, you're not supposing that that is knowing the world. You're, you know, uh -huh. you're aware that you're adding uh, imagination to the world. So it's a difference between 
Um, it's a metaphor of children looking at clouds and imagining horses in them. They know, and if you remember when you do this as a child, you, you think of a horse and then you, the horse is coming. You can feel there's something in your body that's also shaping these cloud formations into that perception, right? You feel that it's a holistic participation. You're not fooled. You don't like then all of a sudden think there's horses in the cloud. So that's what actually we do as scientists. We add epistemic frameworks and then we're fooled. We think there's like Uh atoms in the world, you know, we, we forget that we are actively shaping through creative imaginaries worlds within worlds. So I want to add that, but, but the, the aspect of this, which is learning is that we actually learn to see, you know, we learn to use our perceptual faculty much more precisely, clearly, uh, and skillfully. We feel more, we see more, greater powers of attention, just those three things, and then knowing, noticing, and consciously choosing imaginative or overlays enables a different way of being, uh, produces what I think would... Um, qualify, I'm using a new phrase, as transrational worlds that we can bring into being. Mm. Um, Mm. So this, I think, is um, um, an interesting um, experiment that, um, you know, that's happening in different places and at different levels of commitment. Well, one of the um, things that you said in the presentation that really helped this click for me is you said something like, because you are a part of the world system and you are also self-similar to it, you are therefore a microcosm of the world system and you perfectly reflect it and it perfectly reflects you. So you can work to solve problems at the simplest level. And if you do so with a holistic orientation, you solve everything at once, which is something that you mentioned that I remember that Nora Bateson Uh, says a lot and I had her on the show and she said this kind of thing which which when she said I was like that's very provocative but I have no idea (laughs) how that could possibly be true is there anything that you can kind of say about that that whole what I just said that that, that might offer some more um, uh, understanding or or, uh, substance to that that framing because it's so it's very provocative no I mean what you just said is beautiful and um captures exactly um what what this seems to be pointing to and um yeah i wish that there were more communities um really being able to see the power of this kind of um way of being and uh, i i guess i do have one phrase that i used to capture capture this and that is um so I really truly believe, how did I get to this? And I've had this very strong um, and clear notion of what is required for us to transition, what is required of us at this particular moment. And um, what is required of us is something similar to how we evolved language even that even mm. that phrase how we evolve language how language evolved through to be our use of language our, our, how language evolved to be speech human speech mm. and that is um, 
when, for example, we're children and we lear- we're learning to speech speak, we don't first study a manual and then figure out how to do it before we can get started, right? And even now, even though people study it and have theories, we don't really understand how children learn to speak. Mm. It's a so I think that in this in this section, holistic participation, we're not going to know how to do it beforehand. Mm. So we can't describe it. And even if we get to that, and this is who we are as humans, we will not be able to look back and know how we do it. But mm. we can learn how to be this way. And that mm. is what I've always been saying we're looking for. We're looking at change evolutionary processes of the human that we actually don't know how to do and won't know how we've done them, but that we can learn to do. And we learn to do mm-hmm. it through holistic participation. So I, I find myself extremely curious about this move uh, and, and yet not really knowing how to open up those kind of evolutionary spaces in which that learning might take place or that kind of groping towards this might take place. Uh, Do you have any sense of what those spaces might be like? Like how do we cultivate or create those kinds of spaces to participate in? I think that um, it's this concentration on perception, sensing, um, understanding the power of creative imagination and doing and using that, consciously and not becoming embedded in any such products and also um um i had another thought but i can't think and so sensing tension um perception understand i use creative imaginaries and um you know so all of these things part all of these things are performed with your body you know, mm. um, so it has a big, it has an embodied component component to it, and um, I think that, and then being able to trust that work, even though it's one of these things that's not going to build what we typically understand as knowledge in the world. We cannot know what we're doing, and that, and learn to not rely on. Uh, satisfying that aspect of the mind that's greedy in that way, that wants to be revolved, that wants to be satisfied, that wants um, ideas to be resolved, that wants things to be resolved this once and for all and to come full circle. That's kind of what drives the metasystemic complexity that we solve a problem, Mm. but it's not solved once and for all. So instead of just, dealing with it again we try to solve it at a higher level of complexity so it can be solved once and for all and this once and for Mm. all obviously is an illusion because impermanence is a fundamental truth about um the universe so um i guess that's something else we can put into this into this slide or Mm -hmm. this placeholder yeah, yeah, yeah. That not attempting to go into the solving it once and for all resonates a lot. And I, I, I what's coming to mind is my conversation with Ria Bach. Uh, it seems like now looking back that she's exploring this territory um, with the work that mm-hmm. she's doing. 
And, you know, and that gets us back into continuous participation and um, mm. creative advance, I would say, or creative liberated advance. Well, and so um, with these six different modes, we just kind of did a tour, a mm -hmm. quick tour of all of them. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, this adds a lot of meat to the bones of your uh sense and what you've sort of described as us seeking new minds, right? That, that, that the Anthropocene is to some degree inviting us to create and discover new minds with which to participate in the world. And I'm curious, like, so we, we've, we've seen the three that we kind of know pretty well and that seem inadequate to the challenges that we're facing. And then we see these three new modes emerging uh, where is this process going? Do you see them like combining into one mode? Do you see them like kind of all doing their own thing? Do you see many more being discovered? What's your kind of sense of it right now? Well, if I can uh, morph that question a little, I would say, well, what, what's the, is there a practical contribution in um, outlining something like this? I hope so. Um, so a practical con contribution, and this is where this um, presentation over intersects with my other presentations, and that is um, a lot of people are asking what type of skills do we need to teach children, to teach new generations uh, when we are facing not only an unknown future, but an unknowable future, right? So we're at the point we realize mm. that um, some of these simpler ways of looking at causal relations are not useful. So some of the things mm. we can teach are metacognitive skills. And all of these would um, uh, go under that. Not, not just teach, like we teach metasynthetic thinking, but not because we have people um, consciously do metasynthetic teaching. We just, it's just kind of, we inhabit that world in academia. Yeah. And I read something interesting, this great book by Dan Brown. A lot of people um, know him because of his book on uh, meditation, but he wrote a great mm -hmm. book about uh, uh, attachment disorders and uh, adult psychopathologies. And he has worked a lot with children and he's starting to identify um, spaces or uh, openings or opportunities where we could we can see that metacognitive um, states, I would say they are a state of mind, um, they appear mm. very early in childhood, but we don't acknowledge them, we don't, we don't uh, um, see them for what they are, we certainly don't scaffold them. And um, I think that, and it doesn't have to be serious. I think children, they, a lot of their play is very metacognitive. Um, and we just think it's child's play. But I call these in my other pre presentation, mm. the evolutionary potentials of the core self. They have greater uh, evolutionary potential to create leaps um, through adult life. Mm. And I think that we need to pay more attention here and, instead of paying attention to um, the classic ways that like, egoic and cognitive development goes through stages. So um, I'm working with someone who's uh, using Dan Brown's work and also uh, the great work by Alan Shore, 
on uh, uh, um, affective, uh, affect and attachment in the origins of the self and work with pioneers like Jack Panksepp on the affective streams. And a lot of this literature is in the context of psychotherapeutic intervention or psychopathology, and we're trying to mine them for not psychopathology and healing, but for scaffolding um, um, evolutionary potential um, absent mm. any extreme trauma, but just, you know, while you navigate the, the uh, existential condition of, hu- of being a human. So this is where I think uh, there's a lot of possibility. I think this kind of orientation is good in a monastic uh, setting because of some of these core um, practices and skills that are already taking place in a mas- monastic setting. And um, gee, I, I, I sure hope we could have some kind of curriculum um, specialized for uh, designing um, transformative education in in young people mm. and young adults along this kind of, uh, mm. of framework. So if, if it could make a contribution, I, yeah. I would hope that um, it's pretty easy to, to get from here to there and, and that's something we could do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I was recently speaking with Zach Stein, who just wrote this book, Education uh, in a Time Between Worlds, all about how education, uh, given the future that's emerging, it makes sense to make education the kind of primary directive of our civilization, because we need to prepare people somehow for a future that's, as you say, unknowable. And one of the things that I think this model that you've shared today reveals to me is that like, that doesn't just mean making people who can do the metasynthetic move who are like really good philosophers or Einsteins or something like that. There's actually a whole range of minds that we can cultivate that can do things that we have. We, we just probably have no idea right now what they can do, but they may be able to participate in the world in really substantially different and beautiful ways that could yeah, we just don't we don't we we don't really know where this is going, but we're kind of knocking on the doors of particular directions that are opening up to us now, and perhaps it's the next generation who can really take these much further. Yeah, and so we could make kind of a a a, a strong cut. It's a false cut. It's not that strong, but there's a lot of people working on improving the mind we have, and there's a lot of good work in that domain. But then there's this whole possibility of not settling for the mind we have. And um, Mm. it is an evolving mind, not just a developing mind. We don't need to just develop the mind we have. It's probably inadequate to the task. I'm pretty sure it is inadequate to the task. And um, it may be also why it's so hard to get more than 2-3%, ideally, I guess, into that kind of development because the mind's already moving orthogonally. And that's the mm. direction that evolution takes. It doesn't just put, you know, a different, um, a different packaging on top of a developmental stage uh, progression. It uh, mm. creates it creates something new. And um, I've been at mm. at the uh, I've been in the practice of looking for this new mind for you know a little over a decade now, and it's just getting more and more exciting. So I think this is real. And I think that um, it's really uh, exciting to be able to 
you know, I mean, to have a podcast on something like this, it's really sophisticated, requires a lot of imagination to stay with. Um, but I think there's a ever increasing and growing audience um, around these kinds mm -hmm. of topics. And um, yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, and so I, I would uh, I will link to the presentation itself in the show notes, and I highly recommend going through it. It, it as, as Bonnie has said, it's it's quite complex. Like it definitely pushed me to the edge of my capacities and my ability to do various meta moves, um, but it was well worth it. I feel like it helped me understand in a deeper way a lot of what I've been drawn to in the inquiry of this podcast. And so it, it, it clarified, it also helped me take more ownership of my own capacities and some of these different meta moves. And uh, yeah, it was well worth, well worth the journey, well worth the kind of struggle of really trying to learn it well enough to, to be able to speak in this podcast. So um, really appreciate you uh, coming on the show, Bonita. I'm curious if there's anything before we close the conversation that you'd like to say that perhaps you didn't get a chance to say uh, so far. No, I just want to um, also reflect back that um, when you and Peter were here at um, my farm, Aldelore, um, you know, you had purchase on this because it is kind of the groove that you have already begun to enact in certain circles in the monastic academy. And um, I think this is that gives us reason to believe that um, there's a lot, there can be a lot of benefit and reward in, in pursuing um, some of these frameworks. And uh, it's just so exciting to uh, collaborate with people. And um, Wow, what a gift that you are, Daniel, um, and, the, and the people that you um, continue to highlight. Um, it's really fantastic. 